Well, I'm grateful to be here this morning. I have not met all of you. Um, I have met some of you. Some of you that I have met, I don't remember that. I'm sorry about that because uh, you're all very new to me, and I've spent a lot of time in the children's wing. Um, but yes, my name is Aiden, so I am the intern here uh, this summer with Living Spring, which my understanding is the interning thing used to be really normal for Living Spring, um, and then COVID, and then COVID's maybe getting better, and so then here I am. Uh, so I'm from uh, Southern Illinois. I'm from a small town uh, called Carlinville that I go to school at a place called Greenville University. It's a free Methodist university, which is how I find out about this place, because um, it's a free Methodist church. So that's just a little bit of where I'm coming from. Um, I have a year left of college. I'm studying uh, ministry, um, and, like theology and biblical studies and things like that. So that's me. I recognize that I have the platform to be able to say that. I wish that we had all the time in the world so you all could do that same sort of thing. Um, but that's what the time before and after church is for, if you'd like to do that. So, yeah, as the, the screen says, um, we're talking about biblical justice. And the reason that uh, we were going to talk about this um, is because John said I could talk about whatever I wanted to. And um, because next week we are having somebody by the name, I'm going to tell you everything I know about him which is not a lot, but his name is Frazier. I believe he used to be the superintendent of the conference. Carol is affirming that is true. He used to be the superintendent of the conference, and now he's a bishop? No. He's not a bishop. Yeah. He's on the executive team for the Okay, he's on the executive team for the denomination. And next week he's going to be talking about uh, something called love-driven justice, which is one of these new avenues that the Free Methodist Church is going to be moving in. That's as much as I know. If you want to know more, talk to Carol. Uh, if you want to know even more, then you can be here next week and Frazier will um, be here speaking. But in order to prepare for that, um, I thought that it would be helpful if we just give a basic introduction to what biblical justice looks like. So real quick, just show of hands, who's read the Bible before? Great, most of us, awesome. Uh, who has been confused reading the Bible? Absolutely, absolutely. So. I didn't realize how confused I was reading the Bible until going to school to learn about the Bible. And then a lot of you who are, uh, if you're older than I am, you probably know this even more than I do. The more you learn about something, the more you realize, oh, I really don't know that much. Um, and that's really been my experience in, in three years of studying the Bible. So I thought that, that we could talk about some of the things that I've learned that really just changed the way that I saw the Bible, really changed the way that I knew God and experienced him in communities, and really just changed every day of my life. Um, so we'll be giving an introduction into that. But I want to start with a little question just to get our brains um, going, which is that if any of your lives were a movie, think about like your life. If your life was a movie, then who would be the main character of that movie? I don't know, but for you, I feel like for me, the simple answer is, well, I would probably be the main character of the movie that's about my life, right? Like it would go through school, which has been most of my life so far, um, and it would go through like grade school and like being a bat, being a, sorry, being a brat um, in grade school, uh, and then like trying my hardest and then crying because I'm a perfectionist anytime that I get one question wrong on a test. Um, and then it would go into my wonderful athletic career uh, in middle school um, and it would feature how I was super chubby as a kid and I had a growth spurt and then I got on to the like starting line of the football team and then it would go into high school and it would feature more sports and my high school girlfriend and 
the student council and things like that, and it would maybe include my family, but the point that I'm getting to is if it were the movie, were, if it were my movie, it, I would be the main character of that. And a, a conviction that I've received um, through studying the Bible is that what justice especially is asking us is to have the courage to not be the main character, which is really hard. It's really, really hard, and I'm super not good at it, but it, it requires courage to do that, to put yourself aside, to lift others up and even empty yourself and, and put yourself down. That requires courage. That's, that's not a natural thing for us to go through. So I want to share a little bit about the beginning of my experience here, which is I came in, guns blazing, intern, new church, three years of tool belt Bible, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and I'm just going to like bring in uh, like the kingdom of God like in any way that I can. And quickly, of course, I discovered that was not going to work super well. Um, and I came in, I was like, I'm going to help in this way. Like, I'm going to, oh, there's a problem here. Like, okay, I can, I can like work on that problem. I'll talk to these people and this people. And one big thing that I shared a couple weeks ago whenever I was up here just sharing a bit about who I am uh, is that I, uh, early on, was able to have a lot of time with our homeless ministry, uh, the, the homeless friends that, that come and use, especially our charging station, but then also our bathroom, and we just get to spend time with them. I am from a super small town. We, this is not an exaggeration. We have literally zero homeless people because, uh, because of a lot of reasons, which I'll get into a little bit later. But I have been to cities before. I've interacted barely with homeless people before coming here. But here I was like, oh, this is just going to become a part of my life. When I'm here at work, I'll just go sit outside whenever people come. And quickly I was like, oh, we have water, we have food. Like, can I buy you food? Like, do you need toothpaste? Like, what do you need? I can, like, give it to you. And it was taking this approach of what a lot of people will call the hero complex or the Messiah complex, which is something I had acknowledged earlier in my life and thought I had pretty much fixed and pretty much dealt with. And then coming to a new place and being with new people, I quickly realized there's a lot of it still residing in me. So I would come to them and I would, I would, I would say, here's everything I have to offer. I'm the one with the clothes, the home, the job, the car, the access to the shower whenever I want to. So clearly, I have everything to give to you. And I realized two things. One, a lot of them didn't want me to fix their problems, not because there was necessarily anything wrong with them, just because like to be helped is vulnerable. And a lot of them have been living life that way for a long time, and they figured out how to do it. That was one big realization. And two, I did not see that they had anything to give to me. And I ended up realizing that they have so, so much to give to me. And I also ended up realizing that instead of the things that I can give them, the best thing I can actually give them is myself. Because the number one resource that homeless people, people on the streets, are lacking is not food, it's not shelter, it's not clothes, it's community. Anyone who's been in it for a long time will say that. And I heard that from a mentor a little while ago, and I was like, um... No, I'm pretty sure they're starving. I'm pretty sure they need food. And there's elements of that that are true, but the number one element is community. And my, my small town is a good example. So there's 5,000 people in my small town, and there's no homeless people. It's not because they don't deal with the same issues that homeless people here would deal with. It's because there's so few people that we're able to gather them all in, that we're, we have the space and the government housing. And if you're dealing with a serious mental health issue, your family will turn their life around to work you into it and make sure that you can stay with them as long as you need to. 
And it's just, it's not necessarily better or worse out here, it's just different. But because we have that gift of that natural community back in my hometown and in other hometowns in southern Illinois as well, that we don't see the issue arising as much. Does that kind of make sense now that like the community is like this huge resource, people, people that can help and that you can do life with? Okay, so we're going to come back to that a lot later because we're going to find that the main marginalized and oppressed groups in the Bible their biggest resource also is community. So, uh, Cameron, you can go to the next slide, thank you. Um, so the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. Um, or sorry, if you're watching online, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant. Um, I'm not used to two screens. John is really techie. I'm learning more and more every time that I come here, uh, but it's cool. Um, so these are, uh, they don't really go by anything. We could call them the big four if you want to. These are the big four main groups of people that come up again and again and again, especially in the Hebrew Bible. We call it the Old Testament, but it's the Hebrew Bible, um, that you just, you cannot get away from it at all. You're going to see this, this phrase, sometimes in this order, come up all across scripture or passages or instructions, um, especially in the first five books. Uh, where they're focusing on how to care for these groups. We're going to get into why these groups are so marginalized, why they are so oppressed. And one thing I really want us to talk about before we get into that is this prescriptive versus descriptive conversation. So remember, we all raise our hands. The Bible's confusing. The Bible's super confusing. We can think of this like with your doctor. There's, there's some things when you go to a doctor's appointment, they will give you something, and they give you medicine, which is called a prescription, and so that's, you do this, take this medicine, this is what's going to make you better or treat your illness. And there's also a, a description, which is more like your diagnosis. This is what's going on. It's really describing the situation. It's not necessarily calling it good or bad or it needs fixing or it doesn't need fixing. It's just saying, this is how it is. This is a really important conversation to have when we're looking at the Bible because the most recent part of the Bible was written 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet. They all spoke, it's not written, in, in, unless anybody is fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, it's not written in our language. There's a whole lens after lens after lens after lens that we have to look through of the Bible, and it takes a community, and it takes humility for us to look through and say, I don't know everything that's going on. And so as we look, about it, look at it, I'm going to talk about some things that because I say they're in the Bible, that doesn't mean that they're good things. And the Bible is like purporting it that way. It'll describe a situation, and the way that it's saying it is, this situation is horrible, but we're not reading it from the original like listener's eyes, so we don't know that. So we have to look and say, oh, the Bible is making a comment about like if I gave you, some of you like heard this uh, recently that I was in a car accident in the freeway, Glenn De Deets, I'm totally fine, by the way. Sorry, that was, I probably should have started with that. Um, but uh, Glenn Dietz described it as my initiation into, <laughs> into traffic. Um, if I were to tell you about my car, and if I were to say uh, that it's a small red car and the front left was all crunched in and the light had like exploded basically and my gas and my brakes didn't work, you don't need me to say my car was totaled. You know that. Right? So that's what we're talking about in this prescriptive descriptive. So I'm going to say some things that are not 
prescriptive. There's certain things about the Bible that we shouldn't necessarily do. It's not saying do this, and I'm saying, no, don't do that. That's not what I'm saying. When it does say clearly to do this thing, then we can do that thing. But when it's talking about describing a situation that's different than what we're used to, we need to have the humility and the community to say, no, it's describing an error right here. Does that make sense? Okay, a little distinction. We'll keep coming back to this. Okay, Cameron, you can go to the next one. Um, sorry. Cameron, can you go to the next slide? Thank you. Yes. Villages. Carlinville, Illinois, where I'm from. from. Kind of like a village, but way bigger than the villages that we're talking about. So the economy that we're talking about is not money, per se. Like, you're not, like, richer or poorer. It's all about resources. And your resources is agriculture. What makes agriculture go around? Land, access to water, and people to access the water and run the land. These people are farmers and herders in foothills and plains. They're not from the desert. They're not coming and going there. I'm staying right here. This is where my family is going to be. I'm not going to move anywhere else. And the economy is also subsistence. I remember learning this in seventh grade social studies about subsistence farming, which means you only make enough for what you need. There's no need to like go, like the farms that we see now that are thousands and thousands of acres, we don't, we don't need to do all that. We have our family, we're just gonna make it for our own. Everybody else is gonna be their own. Okay, Cameron, you can go to the father section. So in one household, this gives me anxiety, I don't know if it gives you anxiety, there can be up to five generations in one household. Now we're not saying, like, don't think like a home like we have now, of course, like with indoor plumbing and air conditioning and multiple levels. Some people with a lot of resources might have that, but a lot of times we're talking about tents. And sometimes it wouldn't be just one tent, but there'd be like multiple tents that are around each other. So that's the household, is like these multiple areas. But they don't have a kitchen in each household and a bathroom in each household. There's usually one for each of that, and the rest of them are just sleeping or like lounging or resting areas. The father of these five generations, so if you uh, say there's you, and then there's your kids and your grandkids, and then there's your parents and your grandparents, or if you are a great-grandparent then, and you're like, and you would have to be very far along in life to be able to see them, but you would, you would see all the way down to the little, the niños, the very, very little kids. And the fathers would arrange the marriages for their children, not based on love, not based on, oh, they're compatible, based on, oh, you have resources? Okay, we should marry. And then if we marry together, then we get more resources. Prescriptive or descriptive? Descriptive. 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 <laughs> that's not how the world works over here anymore. In some parts in ancient Near East, that's like where Israel's at. Some parts in Israel, they still do that. We don't need that. We don't need to do that here. Sometimes it comes along with it, great, but descriptive. They could marry outside of the village or tribe, but most of the time they would try to stay within because, again, it's your land. You try to keep getting your land and your household. It needs to stay in your family because it benefits you. The inheritance is passed on to whoever stays in there. So it's not going to be passed on to your daughter because you're usually going to marry your daughter away to a different family. Speaking of daughters, sons are especially good in the ancient Near East because that means that you receive more wives to the family. And with the wives comes something called a dowry which is these resources, maybe access to more water, probably animals, maybe more land as well. Uh, you can go to the next slide. Mother. 
Just as there is one father, there's also only one mother in each household. So sometimes you'll have like me and then like my brothers, but I would be like the father. He's also a father, but I am the father of the household. In the same way there are mothers. This is a polygamous culture. Polygamy just means that you can have multiple spouses at the same time. Prescriptive or descriptive? Descriptive. Somebody said that loud and proud. They're like, yes. Descriptive. So the other women who have children, they're, they're literally mothers, but technically speaking, they are not the mother of the household. So the father would exercise this authority like publicly with the elders and the courts, um, and the mother would do it within the household. In terms of time, the mother is being the leader way more than the father is. But in terms of like the structure of like the authority, the father usually is making the, the like loftier decisions, but the mother is doing it a lot more. Their main role is to bear children and to make sure that the other wives and concubines are doing the same because people are perhaps the biggest resource in the ancient Near East. They're managing all the domestic family and household activities and the production, not just within the household, but about the people in the households. They can also be managing the agriculture that's going around. And they can even designate heirs. We talked last week about Jacob and Esau. Jacob wasn't supposed to be the inheritor of Isaac. It was supposed to be Esau. And Rebecca said, mm, no, I'm going to have Jacob go there instead. They're also the primary educator of the households. They would teach all the clan's traditions and the roles that the new people growing up boys and girls alike, would know from their mother how, what it's like in this clan, what it's like in this tradition. Cameron, you can go to the next slide. So now we're getting into these groups. So we've already talked about the father and the mother, and we've talked about the other people who could have children, and we've talked about their children a little bit. Now we're going to get into why these groups are marginalized. And you may already be thinking like, oh, like if you don't have those things, then of course you'd be marginalized. So we're going to get into specifics. A woman's identity goes from her father's daughter to her husband's wife to her son's mother her whole life. That's what they're known as. From their, so like, uh, my, if, if I'm a woman, then my dad, I'm known as, as my dad's daughter. And then I get older, I marry, okay, now I'm my, my husband's wife. And then I get even older, my husband might still be alive, he might pass away. I am now my son's mother. So the identity is tied to the closest male kin of the family. And if they're without that, then they're a widow. Another thing that can make them without that is if they're shamed for sex without being married, either before or after a marriage, or adultery when they're in a, married, in a marriage and they have sex with another person who they're not married to, married or unmarried. And this is a shocking thing, barrenness in marriage. If you're married and you're a woman who doesn't have kids, you get shamed. Prescriptive or descriptive? Descriptive. Absolutely descriptive. For an orphan, the life begins for children not at adoption. Oh, sorry, at adoption, not at birth. So for us, like if there are many mothers in the room, like you go to the hospital and you're in labor and then you, you have your baby, that's your baby. That's your child. Like, as, as it's a, a, for most of us, it's, it's the child, like, we, we talk about our child before they're born, right? Like, when we're pregnant, we talk about our child. And as soon as they come out, it's like, now they're, yeah, now they're like a baby. They're like a human who doesn't live inside of fluid anymore. In the ancient Near East, that's not the case. 
after several days, the father can decide, not the mother, the father can decide whether or not they want to keep the child, either if they look at birth defects or if they already have too many children or if it's a daughter and the daughter is going to cost them more money. They can leave them up for somebody else to adopt, not going to an orphanage where they live in a place. They take them to a field. The midwife takes them to a field and leaves them there, maybe for somebody else to adopt them, but usually not. Prescriptive or descriptive? Descriptive. You can go to the next slide. And the immigrant, and in our scripture, we'll see, we're going to look at some passages pretty soon. Uh, We'll see words like alien or sojourner or foreigner. They're all like this kind of like Bible speak. In church, we get really used to using these words that like only church people know. To be perfectly explicit, they're talking about immigrants. When they say alien or foreigner or sojourner, immigrant is what they're talking about. They have no home. They have no land except for the family that they might have come with if they even came with a family. So remember, foothills and plains, you're in one place. You take the land, only what you need. If you're coming from Lord knows where and you're going to this new place, you are instantly seen as a threat to the economy, to the resources. We have only as much as we need for us. We're not here to help you, so stay away. And you have, you, have no, you have no animals, potentially. Potentially you came as a nomadic herder who came from the desert with your animals, but you don't have land yet for pasturage, and you don't know the water resources because those are passed down from tribes through generations, and it's held really close to the best information. They have no relational credit, of course, either. This is super important in the ancient Near East and villages. Any of you who have lived or been around small towns know that that is the case as well. The relational credit is super important, but they're a stranger. They're a stranger. All of these groups are homeless. They're without a house or a household. So they're without the place to live, and they're without the people with whom they live. There's no social or political or economic status whatsoever for any of them. They have no one to support them, and they have no community. Now, I used the example of the homeless ministry this morning. I want to be clear. This isn't a trope to make you guys all feel guilty for not spending time with homeless people. I'm not saying that at all. It was just the example that I used because that's who I spent the most time with. I, any one of you could have used the example of your teacher and your kids. Or you could have used the example of you work with trafficked women or anything of this sort. That was just one example that I used. But these people are without a place to live. But more importantly, they're without their community. The poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. You can go to the next slide, Cameron. We finally made it to the Bible. We set the scene. This is the world that we're talking about, and hopefully we can understand this a bit more. Um, if I'm, I'm going to read from here. You guys can also read from here, Exodus 22, because um, there's real power in just holding the book and just remember how it got to us, which is pretty ridiculous. Again, 2,000 years and thousands and thousands of miles on the other side of the planet. Um, So in Exodus 22, we read, Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Again, that says foreigner, alien, foreigner, stranger, sojourner, immigrant. They're all immigrant. It's like how we would say it today. That's the word that we use today. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger 
will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children will become fatherless. Now some of you might already be thinking this in verse 23. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Now this like might be turning some gears like, oh, where have I heard that before? You heard it in the same book way earlier in the book when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and they cry out to the Lord. They were the oppressed, they were the slaves, they were the marginalized, and they cry out to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he hears their cry, and he brings justice to those people. He does not let evil and not let injustice win that day. For 400 years it lasts, but he doesn't let it win. He doesn't let it have the final word. So he's saying, at this point, the exodus has already happened. They've already crossed the Red Sea, they've gotten the manna and the quail, and this is just a couple chapters after the first 10 commandments come, and these are more instructions that are given to the Israelites as well. And he's saying, remember where you came from, and remember that I am the God of the oppressed. We're going to go to the next one, which is in Deuteronomy 24. Perfect. Verses 17 through 24. Do not deprive the immigrant or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember, widows don't have homes or households, so they have a cloak. It's what they walk around in during the day, and when they sleep, it's what keeps them warm, because sort of similar to here, it gets super cold at night, even colder than here. They don't have the ocean breeze, but they have a complete absence of sun and anything that that would bring any heat and it's just dry, and there's nothing capturing moisture in the air, and it's just freezing at night. So don't keep the cloak of the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field, and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. I'm not gonna get into specifics of all that, but basically, take only what you need, and Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of all your hands. You don't need to go and maximize profit. You don't need to go and maximize gain. You just take what you need. When you beat the olives for your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Same concept. Leave what remains for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, Do not go over the vines again, same thing. Leave what remains for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. You can go to the next slide, Cameron. So this is the cry of the prophets. So the setting of the prophets, who they're speaking to, is Israel, and sometimes the kings of Israel, after what was called the exile. They had their promised land, and they didn't really stick to their end of the covenant deal, the covenant that was made with Abraham. I'll bless you, you'll be a father of many nations, and your nation will bless other nations. They didn't really stick to the instruction, and the Lord allowed them to go into into exile with countries coming and taking them over. And the cry of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, and others, these are just, like, they're not random picked, I intentionally picked them, but they're all over the place as you're going to see coming up again and again. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow, foreigner, fatherless, widow, fatherless, foreigner, poor, widow, the poor and the needy. Again and again, I, the, the point of why I 
unfortunately inundate you with scripture is because you can't get away from these groups. And you can't get away from the fact that God is a God of justice and he is a God of the oppressed. You can go to the next slide, Cameron. Specifically, the one thing, again, I did not know this before going to school and learning this. The Bible is a story written from the oppressed perspective. The people who were literate and were, and were holding on to these scrolls and to these letters uh, were devoting their lives to, to the preservation of these things, the translation of these things when they needed to, and making sure the community came around it and said, yes, that is about the God that I believe in. That is the story that I know. And the people who are writing it and the time that they're writing it are in exile at the time. Adam and Eve are not writing, oh, and God said that tree's good and that tree's bad, and then we really messed up because we ate the other tree. That's not what's happening. And the same thing with, um, with many other parts of the Bible. It's not like a live recording. But it's communities that come together and say, yeah, like we, this is important. We need to remember this story and we need to share this story with our people. But the time that they're writing it, they're in exile from Assyria or from Babylon or from Rome in the New Testament or from the Mas with Alexander the Great, the Macedonian Empire, um, with the Greeks, with, with all sorts of people. The authors of the Bible are the oppressed. And it's from their perspective that they're saying that yes, Yahweh, our God, is the God of the oppressed. And he has continued again and again to come down to our level, even when we, because we see this happen a lot, the oppressed become the oppressors and they rise to power. Even though again and again we rise to power and we usurp that authority, we take it over and we don't treat the marginalized and the oppressed with love, with other-centeredness, with self-giving and self-emptying, God continues in his covenant faithfulness to come back again and again and again. And that is the God that we will write about. And that is the God that we will proclaim is the God of Israel, not the other ones that are being talked about at the time. But God is the God of us. He's the God of the oppressed, even when all hope seems lost and we're not at home. You can go to the next slide, Cameron. The crazy thing that happens in the Bible, if you look at the Bible as a story from, from cover to cover, it, it starts with justice in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Everything is right as it, as it should be. This Hebrew word shalom, which a lot of us has heard translates to peace, kind of, that's an element of it, but it's so much more than that. Our word peace is kind of like without war, like the U.S. is at peace right now, like we're fine. No. <laughs> we're, anyone, anyone who knows, like we're, we're not at peace right now. But shalom is all things are as they can be. If you think of a web, everything is interconnected and they're all supporting each other. They're only giving, there's no taking in shalom. That's the image of the Garden of Eden. And we go all the way through this story, all the ups and the downs and the, we take authority, oh, we messed it up, we're back oppressed again. Oh, God raised us, oh, we're back oppressed again. And then the author of the story enters the story in Jesus and Jesus both is oppressed, he is some of these groups of people, and he looks after the oppressed. And thank God that he is because we need him to be both. If he were only the oppressed or only looked after the, best, uh, after the oppressed, we would miss out on this beautiful idea of justice. So there's a ton of examples of, of Jesus promoting looking after the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. Matthew 18, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? His disciples are around like, oh, I'm going to ask our teacher a like, really smart, intellectual, heady question. 
who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus moves them aside and he grabs a child and he puts the child in the center of the, of the disciples. And he says, if you don't become like this child, you will not find your place in the kingdom of heaven. Even though you've been a part of bringing the kingdom of heaven for years at this point, you will not be a part of that kingdom unless you enter like this child. I don't know about you, but I'm like, what? Like, a child? Like, don't you want me to, like, be really smart and, like, accomplished? He's like, that's what you need to be like. Mark 10, Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, right? There's some kid's song. I don't know what it is, but it's out there. Bartimaeus is crying out. He hears the, that the Messiah is coming, and he's yelling, and he's saying, Messiah, come. Are, are you Jesus? Are you, are you the Messiah, the one who has come to save? And the disciples are walking along. They're like, we got business to do, dude. Get out of here. Like, stop. He yells even louder. They're like, stop. Jesus stops. And he turns and he goes to Bartimaeus. And the craziest thing, he goes up to a blind guy and he says, what can I do for you? Duh. Like, dude, I can't see. But he simply says, if you would receive my sight, Lord. And, he, and then he heals him, and, and he's in the crowd, and he stops, and he goes to the one sitting on the side of the road. Luke 8, very similar story. There's a hemorrhaging woman. She's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. If you're hemorrhaging in the ancient Near Eastern culture, you are shamed. Prescriptive or descriptive? Descriptive. Absolutely descriptive. And she has been outcasted by everyone. And he's through this crazy crowd, and she just touches him. And it could have left there. He felt the power leave, and then she was healed. And he could have just been like, oh, she's healed? Okay, we're moving on. No. He stops in the crowd, and he puts the woman at the center again. The woman caught in adultery, one of the most, I think John mentioned this a week or two ago. Did he mention this a week or two ago? Some head nods? Great. Awesome. Thank you. Um, the woman caught in adultery. She's brought by the, the religious leaders. She's thrown onto the ground before Jesus, who they recognize as a righteous person. And they say, the instruction says that we need to stone her. What do you say? And then he does the thing where he writes on the ground, and we have no idea what he writes down. But he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then the oldest leave first, and it goes younger and younger and younger. Jesus lifts up the head of the woman at the center and says, where are your accusers? She says, there's nowhere to be found. And he, the righteous one, the son of man, says, nor do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. It's pinnacled. It's, it reaches its climax in the cross and the resurrection. Jesus himself is oppressed. Jesus himself is without his family. He doesn't stay in a place. He goes around to different places, to different villages, spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. And he himself is oppressed and he is outcasted and he is kicked out all the time. And he suffers the ultimate injustice when an innocent man is traded for one of the most ruthless criminals. And the crowd says, no, give us Barabbas. And this one go in instead for saying that he's the son of God. And he dies one of the most gruesome deaths that you can die in that age. The death that was reserved for the worst of the worst. And they give that death to Jesus. But the good news is that it doesn't have the final word because the cross is not the end of the story. The resurrection says, no, that's not how it ends. It's not just I'm dying in your place for your sin. It's I'm defeating it for good. And I raise and I defeat death. 
The crazy thing is, how does he defeat death? By dying. By allowing death and evil to exhaust all of its power on himself. And in allowing it to do that and saying, that's it. That's the best that you've got. And then I'll stand up and say, sorry, I'm going to keep the story going. It's the good news of Jesus. You can go to the next slide. Oh, that's the last slide. Never mind. The last part is on here. Closing thoughts. How are we doing? That was a lot. It's a lot. Okay. There's no test. I'm, I'm studying the Bible. You guys don't know how to study the Bible. The cross and the resurrection, this beating death by dying to death, creates for us this imagination that we can have that is pretty upside down, right? The courage to not be the main character, that's pretty upside down because everything natural is saying that we can be the main character. And it's the death of two things. On the side of the oppressor, it's, it's the death of my selfishness, my self-sufficiency, my self-centeredness, only thinking about me, my materialism and attachment to, to non-eternal things. And for the oppressed, sorry, I'm the oppressor. That's what the death is too. For the oppressed, because of the way that the world works, we're, we're no strangers to this. Some people will not see the end of their day of injustice. That's where the story is still going. And Jesus promises that the story is not over. But it's the death of their shame. It's the death of their ostracism. It's the death of their heartache. And Jesus says, those do not have the final word. Those do not have the final word. It's easy to look at people without dignity, without honor, without worth. But Jesus says again and again and again, they do. And he makes it poignantly clear to us. For us, it would make sense to put the leaders, the accomplished, the charismatic people at the center and Jesus should be putting himself at the center, I would think. But again and again, he moves others who aren't receiving the worth and dignity that he knows that they have, those people made in the image of God. Justice helps us to courageously make other people's problems our problems. The author did not have to come into the story and wear this skin, but he chose to, and he chose to live our life and to show us the new humanity that we are becoming even today. So I just want us to think about who are the marginalized, who are the oppressed in our world today. In some ways, they're the same groups. In a lot of ways, poor, orphans, widows, and immigrants are definitely marginalized. And there's many other groups that are marginalized and oppressed, both by systems that continue to, to to push them down and don't let them get a leg up, and also by individual people. We're no stranger to this at all. And there's, there's ways that we, can, that we can interact with this. We can do these little things. We can go to people who are poor and, and needy, and we can give them the shirt off our back, and we can give them food. And another really simple thing that we can do is we can sit with them, because people often don't look at them because it's scary, right? I, I don't want to live on the streets. I don't want to be without a family. And it's really hard to confront that. And sometimes the best thing that they need and the thing that Jesus gives them more often than anything is just his presence. He just goes and he sits with them. Because most of the time, they're, they're either shunned or looked past. Like they're not even acknowledged. 
And we're not just, again, talking about people in the streets. We're talking about people that we work with as well, the outcasted and the ostracized and the marginalized. But the gift of their presence where we can say in our brains and to them, you have dignity, you have worth, you have honor. God told me so. So we can offer those tangible resources, but with the power of showing up with presence again and again, the Lord will bless that commitment to others, to the poor, the orphan, the widow, all of the oppressed. The Lord will bless that commitment. It's slow, but God is in it for the long haul. God is really in it for the long haul. Ezekiel, you can come up. We're going to close with this. The story of the Bible, like we said, is this story of justice. And there's ways, if we're willing, if we continue to choose to be humble, if we continue to both lift others up if they need it, but also to empty ourselves and put ourselves down, we can see the gift of that presence. We can see the gift of that justice. We can see the gift of a good God who hears the cry of the oppressed and says, no, I beat it and I'm still beating it. This is not the end of the story. This is the good news of Jesus, that God is alive and God is the God of the oppressed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we are in desperate need of you. Uh, we just pause to, to praise you and thank you for the gift that you are alive that you are present with us and that you compel all of us in this community to gather together and to pursue you and to pursue your people. This issue is too big. This concept is too lofty. It's, it's too confusing and it's too scary. And as we approach it together, we just ask for your grace. We ask for your patience and we ask for your continued covenant faithfulness to us. In the ways that, that we come up short, in the ways that we are lacking, God, we just pray that you would teach us and Holy Spirit that you would empower us to see with your eyes, to understand with the listening ears of your heart. Help us to come to your feet and help us to come to the feet of those that we can do a life with. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you that you are Lord and that you have the final word. We pray all these things in your heavenly name, amen. Um, the blessing um, this morning, in, in the tradition that I come from, uh, what I learned is that with the blessing, we kind of get to put our hands like this or like this, but it's, it's something we get to receive, and it's a gift, something that, that it's a gift to you, and you don't have to take it or steal it, it's yours. It's from God, and it's yours, and you can, and you can take it with you wherever you go. The blessing um, is a passage also from Isaiah, from chapter 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say? Why have you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. 
You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them, and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.